Ayin, which is I watch no watching. Assure your servants well-being, let not the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love, teach me your decrees. I am your servant, give me discernment, that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act on your law is being broken, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. Because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Hey, good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. All right, so we have, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 today. We're starting a new chapter. So, hang on a sec. We'll get into two other things before we do that. The first is, right. yeah, well, we're going to do that after we do this. Um, it's July, uh, what is today? It's June. 27, thank you. 28, thank you. Yeah, well, I should, but I forgot. Okay, June 28th. Have you ever noticed how God sometimes uses unlikely characters to play important roles in executing his plan? I could think of one right now from the book of uh, One Kings, unlikely character. The girl that uh, uh, was taken up a servant to the Naaman, the Assyrian. Uh, Don't even know what her name is, but she... Uh, she uh, was the impetus behind him going down to Israel. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, a case in point is the 400-pound founder of the Episcopal Church. That's a big Episcopal 400. Church founder. He was born on 28 June 1491, the second son of King Henry VII of England. Named after his father, young Henry was trained for a career in the church with a classical education since as second son he was not born to be king. However, when his older brother Arthur died in 1502, young Henry became the heir apparent to the throne. Henry was just 17 when his father died, and he began to reign as King Henry VIII. Honoring his father's dying request, he married his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon, thus maintaining the alliance between England and Spain. Two weeks after their wedding in 1509, they were crowned King and Queen of England. Henry turned over the management of his realm to his ministers in particular to Thomas Wolsey, his chaplain. In 1515, Wolsey was made a cardinal by the Pope and Lord Chancellor by Henry. In the early years of his reign, Henry was concerned with two issues, the spreading Reformation and his inability to sire a male heir. In ecclesiastical matters, Henry VIII was a strong supporter of the Pope against the Reformation. In 1521, he co-authored a book, Defense of the Seven Sacraments, which became a bestseller throughout Europe. Why would anybody want to defend the seven sacraments? There aren't seven sacraments, unless you're whatever. I mean, it's not biblical, in other words. Unless you're brainwashed. Yeah, unless you're brainwashed. As Henry VIII grew older and larger, that's a big guy, his preoccupation with his lack of a male heir um, and his preoccupation with the lack of male heir Catherine of Aragon bore him six children, but only one, Mary Tudor, survived infancy. To Henry, it was unthinkable that a girl would succeed him. This became especially frustrating for him in 1519, when his mistress, Elizabeth Blount, bore him a son who was ineligible to succeed him because of his illegitimacy. When Catherine turned 40 in 1526, it was obvious to Henry that she would never bear him a son. By 1527, Henry was head over heels in love with 21-year-old Anne Boleyn. 
the younger sister of an earlier mistress. Boy, he's all over the place. Oh, Cardinal no Wolsey, yeah, wow. Cardinal Wolsey tried to arrange a divorce from Catherine through the Pope, but the issue dragged on for years. Finally, Henry defiantly took things into his own hands in a direct challenge to the Pope's authority, made himself head of the Church of England. He felt it was the only way he could ever get a divorce from Catherine. <laughs> wow. Henry uh, named Thomas Cramer, who had uh, been influenced by Lutheranism, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Cramer reciprocated by granting Henry VIII's divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Henry secretly married Anne Boleyn the second of his six wives, before his divorce was final. Man, this guy is just... Keep going, Well, Charlie. more important for the future, Henry enacted a series of laws that permanently separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church. Today, the Church of England is known in the United States as... Thank you, the Episcopal Church. And, um, yes, uh, let's see here, where was I? Was the Episcopal Church, and elsewhere is the Anglican Church. Henry himself may never have subscribed to any Protestant doctrines, and his motives may have been self-serving, yet God used him to begin the Reformation in England. God uses whom he chooses to achieve his purposes. And they ask, what person or experience has God used in your life in unexpected ways? Did his choice puzzle you? King Henry VIII may have had his selfish reasons for forming the Anglican Church, but God used him for his purposes anyway. The wonder of God's sovereignty is that we don't have to understand why he does what he does. It is enough to know that it is all a part of his greater plan for our good and his glory. And they cite Romans 8 verse 28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So there you go. Um, and then really quickly, article 12 of the Chicago Statement of Faith which says, Article 12, um, we affirm that scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. Okay, that's pretty clear. I don't think we need to go any further than that. It's just very clear. Um, but we deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes. I see where they're going with this. They're saying that the Bible is completely inerrant in all themes, and then some liberal comes along and he says, well, spiritually, it, it tells about Jesus, and that's true, but it's in, not inerrant about the story of, um, you know, Elijah going up to heaven in a chariot or something. That's what they're saying. They're saying that it teaches uh, spiritual, religious, or redemptive things exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science, etc. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may be properly used to overturn the teaching of scripture on creation and the flood. So they are denying that. I'll read it again. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes. Themes exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of scripture on the creation and flood. In other words, evolution is a doctrine that is taught in school. Actually, it's a theory. There's no proof of it, and that's why it's called the theory of evolution. And people say that that refutes the Bible. That, one, it doesn't refute the Bible. It doesn't overturn the Bible. And two, it 
can have no fellowship with the Bible. There can be no fellowship between the doctrine of or the theory of evolution and the doctrine of creation. Why? Give me one reason, only one. All we need is one. Is because original sin cannot evolve. Man was created, man fell. You cannot evolve into original sin. If nothing else, either the Bible is true or evolution is true, and they are incompatible. We could go into probably 50 other reasons, but that is sufficient. All we need is the doctrine of original sin, and we can stop with that one. Okay, so before we get into Romans 12, verse 1, we'll go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so, so very much for the chance to come and meet together. We heard some really loud thunder and lightning out there and we would pray that people would be safe and they would uh, drive safely and whatever storms are coming down around Sarasota right now and uh, we thank you for the rain that you've given us and we do pray that it'll be a summer full of it we always need it here with the sandy soil so we we praise you for what we do get and we thank you uh, for your gracious and merciful hand in that regard and we pray for anybody that is suffering or struggling out there with issues in their life and certainly almost all of us do at any given time so we lift up our hearts to you. We lift up those who are in those positions who keep quiet about their uh, troubles. And we would just ask that you would search us out and uh, give us the relief that's needed so that we can turn around and praise you and thank you. And we do love you, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful word and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. As so, you mentioned this, Henry the Eighth. Wasn't he the guy that had the scriptures written to? Uh, no, James. James. James, King James. He's the one that had the, the King James Bible authorized. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Please. So yeah. The what yeah, that was sixteen eleven. That was in the fourteen hundreds there. So now he may have had something, you know, he may have had people in there that were doing something. I don't know. But I I don't know much about English history. I'm not a I'm not, uh, Henry the Eighth is like the most famous. Yeah, I, and I know the name Henry the Eighth. Oh my but, gosh, he'd be head of how many of his wives? Oh wow! Well, there you go. He just uh, okay. We have got uh, Romans twelve verse one is where we are starting today. So a whole new chapter with a whole new direction. We've gotten through the I don't want to say the most important chapters in uh, uh, Romans, but. As far as dispensationalism, they are really important chapters was 9 through 11, dealing with the issue of Israel, dealing with the Jews. Before we read 12.1, just remember, Paul has never, not one time, ever lumped Israel in with the church and called them the same thing. He always makes a distinction of who Israel is. And then to prove that, he says things about Israel that if you said that applies to us, like I said, what, which verse was it? We'll go there very quickly. Yeah, it, the what? Yeah, just a couple verses ago. Uh, yeah, within the last week or two, and he says, um, uh, "How then? No, that's not it." Um, uh, oh, I'm in. Heck, I'm in uh, chapter ten. Of course, I'm not going to find it. Um, uh, yeah, thirty-one. Even so, these also now have been disobedient. Speaking of Israel, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. Well, if they are disobedient, and that's us, then why would anybody listen to us, right? And there, you picked out another one. So when just take those verses and think them through. If that applies to the church, then that's us. He's never making the, the leap that the church is Israel and Israel's a church. Anyway, we went through that. Go back and watch the old ones if you want, but uh, uh, that's the deal. Very important chapters to understand the situation of Israel and the church. Okay, so now we are in chapter 12, verse 1. Living sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
There you go. Good stuff. It's a good way to start chapter 12. It says, uh, Paul spoke of doctrine in chapters 1 through 8. We know that a lot of doctrine in those chapters. Next, he moved to the concept of the dispensational nature of God's redemptive workings in chapters 9 through 11. That's what I was talking about there. I don't want to lift one section above another. If you want to know the doctrine of Christ, Christology, you're going to definitely want to go through chapters 1 through 8. It's, it's necessary. If you want to know why Israel is in the state they're in, why the church is the way they are, then you go to uh, 9 through 11. Okay, now his final section, chapters 12 through 16, and I know people will divide up Romans in different ways. This is just how I've divided it up into three major categories. But other people will say this is, you know what I mean? So if you read another commentary and they say, well, they divided it up differently, no big deal. There are a million ways to divide up the Bible depending on what you're doing and what type of instruction you're you're conducting, okay? But these are three major sections. In 12 through 16, he will speak of our devotional responsibilities. So you've got doctrine, and then you've got um, the dispensational model, and then devotional responsibilities. So just think of the three Ds, okay? Uh, what our duties are and how to perform them is what we're gonna see in chapters 12 through 16. And so he begins with his plea to those in Rome. I beseech you therefore, the word therefore is given based on the awe-inspiring doxology that he just presented at the end of chapter 11. God's glory is incomprehensible. His wisdom is infinite and his judgments are beyond finding out. Because of this surpassing greatness, Paul implores the brethren. In Greek, the term brethren here is used anytime, at least, anybody know what uh, the standard model for Hebrew and English is when speaking to an audience. One male, you speak in the masculine, okay? Yes. It's always in the masculine. In other words, if he says, I beseech you, brethren, he's speaking to the church, right? If there's one male in attendance, and we do that in English, English up until a couple of years ago, right? We would say him or they right. or whatever in the masculine. And all of a sudden, that's no longer allowed in our language. And so everything is... But that's, that's how the language oh, works, okay. is it is in the masculine, okay? And that is the way that the, uh, the Bible does that. Okay, so I'm going to go back and I'm going to read that again. Um, therefore, it's given on that. Um, oh, um, Paul implores the brethren. In Greek, the term brethren is used anytime at least one male is addressed. This is in no way diminishing to women, but it is how the language is structured. That's one of the reasons why people hate the Bible is because it says brethren, brethren. And now, you know, you read the Bible and what do they do in the new international version? version? Yeah, brothers and sisters. Okay. It's unnecessary. It doesn't mean, yes, it can be inferred from that. Adelphoi, the word, you can infer that he's speaking to men and women. He even addresses women issues in there. Irrelevant. It's in the masculine in the Greek. There's no need to change it unless you are politically correct and you have an agenda against what is going on in the society, okay? Or pro what's going on in the society by tearing the society apart, which is what's happening in America. You can no longer be masculine without being toxic in the process, right? It's crazy. Okay, there you go. So, um, is that more Oh, it's just the way it's structured. I don't think there's any more accountability on it. I mean, when we speak to God in the Bible, it's always masculine. And Jesus says, Abba, Father. Okay. And it does now in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, it'll speak of the hierarchy. The uh, Christ is the head of the church. The man is the head of the family. And that, you know, he gives the hierarchy. 
And so there's an accountability, but there's just as much accountability on the women. It's just a different type of accountability. Everybody's responsible to somebody. And then we all have interworkings that we're, you know, we're interconnected. So, uh, you know, if people use the Bible to say slavery is okay, right? Or if they use the Bible to say it's okay to beat women, they're misusing the Bible. Now, I will say this, in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, slavery is okay. It doesn't condone it. It doesn't say you shouldn't do it. It's just simply a state of fact. Slavery is a state of fact. When he wrote, he says, bond servants, obey your masters, right? Now, the one thing he says is, if you can get your freedom, do so, okay? But he doesn't say that you should usurp your master, you should run away or anything like that. And in fact, he argues against that in the book of Philemon. This guy has run away. He's in trouble with you. I want to pay the cost. I want to take care of all of this. And Okay, so the book of Philemon is what we're starting. Uh, I think it's this Wednesday. We're going to start the book of Philemon. We're in Titus. We're almost done with it. Okay, and so you, you, you can't justify slavery from the Bible, and you can't justify doing away with slavery from the Bible. Those are not issues that the Bible addresses. I, people try to make it into an issue. I'm sorry, it does not. Okay, um, uh, marriage. People say that you uh, polygamy is not acceptable under the Bible. Well, when it says that an elder must be the husband of but one woman, what does that imply? Yeah. That there's polygamy and that an elder cannot do it, but the rest of the society, it's a cultural thing. Paul was a, it was a Jew, right? Okay, so Paul is Jewish. Was polygamy allowed within the Jewish society? Absolutely it was, right there in the Bible. It's, it's never talked down against, ever. Now, people will say, Every time polygamy is mentioned in the Bible, there's always something bad. One, that's not true. There are times where something bad happens. Hannah gets picked on by the other wife and all that. It's allowed. The Bible simply allows it in the Jewish culture. Now, today it may not. I have no idea what they teach as far as that doctrine. But in the Bible, people had more than one wife, and it was acceptable. So, uh, speaking of wife, hang on a second here. Come here, I want them that to was, see you and me together. Come here. Like, come here. That was perfect. That was perfect. We're talking about women. We're, come here. Come here. I want the people to see what's going on here. This is this is amazing. I did not know that you were going to do this. So look at this. I had no idea. Come here. Look at this. Come here. Sit down here. Oh, she's going to take her picture. And we got our... We got our uh, Gray oh, shirts. I oh, we both have jeans on too. We both have shoes. Wow, on. I don't have shoes on. I'm sorry. That's not. Oh, you know there are people online that need to have a Bible study, and you guys are taking photos. So okay. Okay. So having said that, happy 34th anniversary to you. Okay. All right. 34. Uh, Oh, those really smell good. Bring those back. They smell great. Oh, oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so never come in late unless you want to get embarrassed. Okay, I'll take those home for you so you don't have to drive and hold them. So anyway, um, yay. I'm so glad she showed up for Bible class and she happened to show up in the same. Well, we're talking about marriage. And yeah, anyway, so these are issues that people can get all upset about and they can try to force things into the Bible. Let's not do that. And I don't know how we got off. The, oh, yeah, I do. It's because speaking of the masculine in the Greek. Okay, so here we go. Um, brethren, this is no way, in no way diminishing the women. It's how the language is structured. Okay, those at Rome were all being addressed, male and females, including women, as is indicated very clearly in chapter 16. He's going to address women, but he always speaks in the masculine because that's the way the language is structured. Yes. If I was writing this, 
I would put in parentheses believers, brothers, believers. Yeah, believers. 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 Yeah, yeah but okay. he, but you weren't writing it. Paul wrote it. I know, but, <laughs> but I always use believers instead of Christians yeah. in, in writing. Because right. Christian can mean Christian can mean a whole lot of things. In today's world, Christian can mean yeah, a whole lot yeah, of things yeah. that are not intended by the word. So, okay, then he goes on. I'm going to read you it again because we've gotten off a little bit of a tangent. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Okay, and then it says after that that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. By the mercies of God uh, takes us back to the mercy verses of 1130 through 1132. Go back and read them if you want, which just preceded the doxology. As God is determined to have mercy on both Jew and Gentile, Paul states that those objects of God's mercy should as he says next, present your bodies a living sacrifice. On the surface, this seems like an oxymoron. Why? Why does it seem, anybody? Why would it seem like sacrifice is usually die? Yeah, sacrifices usually means you're checking out, you're punching your ticket, okay? So a sacrifice by nature is something that dies. And yet Paul asks us to be living sacrifices. However, to Paul, there was nothing contradictory in his words. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that I die daily. Okay, so he is dying daily. He is a living sacrifice. A sacrifice was offered to God for various reasons. Atonement, fellowship, thanks, and so on. All kinds of offerings that we went through in chapters, uh, uh, the book of Leviticus, especially up through chapter 16. You had the you know, from chapter 1 to 16, he had all of them, and it was kind of culminated by chapter 16, the Day of Atonement Rituals. More sacrifices in there after that, but that, you know, that's the general area of it. These offerings were sometimes entirely given over to God in the fire, such as a sin offering. Okay, now, there were times that the sin offering was entirely given over, but there were times that the priest would eat the sin offering of the people. Now, why would he do that? Because he is it's a picture of Christ taking in our sin and purging it away from us. Okay, so there were certain times that he had to do certain things. It's very, very detailed. If you want to know the offerings, it's a long book. It's very detailed, but you will you will be blessed abundantly if you go back and you watch the Leviticus sermons. We go through every single verse word by word, and you'll learn a lot about sacrifices from the Old Testament system. Every single one of those sacrifices points to Christ. Every single one of them. Okay, so either way, through the uh, though the entire sacrifice was consumed. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the, the sin offering might have been burned up all all the way. Okay, other offerings were shared in, by the one who offered it, such as in the fellowship offering. You'd have a fellowship offering. The Lord would get a portion. You'd get a portion. That kind of resembles our communion, Lord's Supper. We're fellowshipping with the Lord through that, so it's kind of a one-to-one -one ratio on that. Either way, though, the entire sacrifice was consumed, whether it was burnt wholly to the Lord, whether it was partially eaten here, partially eaten there, whatever. This is the idea that Paul is conveying to them here in the book of Romans, and thus to us. Now, remember, when he is writing these things, he is a, we just said it, he's a Jew. And not only that, he was trained in the law of Moses. He was a Pharisee. So he is always thinking these things. If you can understand that Paul is a Jewish person, a Hebrew, and he is giving you examples from the Old Testament because there was no New Testament, he's got to teach them somehow, right? We understand the New Testament 
because it's written for us. That's not the way it worked back then. Paul is giving them doctrine, and he's giving it from the Old Testament. So if you don't know the Old Testament, there will always be a void in your understanding of the New Testament. Always. I'm not saying that you need to have the Old Testament. People go their whole life without having it, and they're fine Christians, but they have a void in their understanding of theology because they have not gone back and they have not properly studied the Old Testament. Personally, I love being there. Every time we close out a book in the Old Testament, it, it brings me to tears because I love what we have learned in the process of going through that and how it points to Christ, okay? So anyway, um, Paul is conveying this to them and thus to us. We are to be completely consumed in our offering to God, not in literal death, but in death to unrighteousness, death to sin, death to, to uh, immorality, and so on. All of the things that we're not supposed to do, we're supposed to die to daily. I die daily. We are to be living sacrifices. This living sacrifice is to be a part of our very nature as we continue on in our earthly tents, which are our bodies. Paul also calls them elsewhere earthly tents, but he also calls them jars, jars of clay, because we're humans, we're jars. A clay jar is worth what in the Old Testament? Nothing. It's nothing. But what do you put in it is what makes it valuable. We are jars of clay, but we have the Spirit, the most valuable commodity in the universe and beyond the universe is the Holy Spirit. So it is what is contained in us that makes us of value to God. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and therefore we should take this jar of clay and we should present it to God as a living sacrifice. Okay, so um, we got our earthly tents. We're waiting for the day that Christ is going to call us home, and that's either through death or through the rapture. Yes, unless you are in a Reformed church, then you won't believe in that. So yes, people ask that from time to time. Are people that don't believe in the rapture going to be raptured? Yes, it's, it's, it's a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee. He is not going to take the Holy Spirit away from them and leave them behind. The only difference between the people in the Reformed churches and the people that believe in the rapture is that they will be more surprised yes. than we will. Okay. Yeah, they will be very surprised. But it's going to happen to all people. If you are a saved believer in Jesus Christ, you are saved. If you read a commentary that says, oh, well, they're not going to go because they don't believe God's word. That's stupid because there are people that make those commentaries that don't believe part of God's word and read their read their other pages and there's something that they are flawed in in their theology and they're going to be taken to the Lord will correct all of our deficiencies in doctrine he'll correct all of our unknowings and all of those things when we go up there but if you are saved you are saved you are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee and that is going when at the rapture okay so they'll be a little more surprised that's about it okay so um we've got the um death or rapture and until that time our every act and thought is to be a devotion and an offering to god a living sacrifice as he says in conclusion of the verse such a sacrifice is to be holy acceptable to god which is your reasonable service thank you holy is undefiled and without mar or blemish it is to be set apart, sanctified to God, acceptable to God. The next words he writes involves the thought that we are his. We were bought at a price and we are to be effective bondservants of Christ, not slack in our duties or our devotions. We are to honor God with our every fiber and our every bit of our being, okay? Bringing every thought into captivity so that our service will be complete, undefiled, and honorable to him 
Such is our reasonable service, and such is the expectation of God who sent Jesus to give us the pattern and the model that we are to emulate. Okay, let me ask you a question. Has everybody done that all day today? I don't see any hands up. Okay, yes. If you feel bad about that, good. Because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to feel bad when we don't meet the standard. Okay, what is that called? Conviction. Thank you. That's what it is. And if you're not being convicted of wrongdoing, there's a problem with you. If you think that you can just sin and brush that off and think, oh, you know, I'll deal with that when I see the Lord, that's not an appropriate attitude to have at all, no way, shape, or form. We are to feel convicted about it. We're to be remorseful over it, okay? At the same time, we should not beat ourselves up to the point where we are miserable human beings. If we're convicted, I'm not going to do that anymore, or I need your help, Lord, give me strength. But you shouldn't lose your joy in the Lord at the same time as feel, feeling convicted. Okay, there's there's this thing that's going on in all of us. And there are some Christians that are Martin Luther, perfect example. The guy was miserable. Now, he probably wasn't saved at the time, but there are people like Martin Luther that are saved that are miserable all the time. I just, I, I failed you again, Lord. And that's all you hear from him all day long. You know, have the joy of the Lord. And when you fail him, admit it and move on. Okay, be reasonable in your thinking. Be reasonable in your service to God. Be reasonable in your conviction. Don't let that fall by the wayside, etc. But always try to strive without killing yourself in the process over what you have failed at. Because he's already forgiven you for those things. All right? So, um, life application. Let us truly be living sacrifices to God, wholly pleasing to him in all ways. We are his, and it is only right that we acknowledge this, being his in our lives and in our conduct. Right? It's hard. It's difficult. Sometimes I post something on Facebook and five minutes later, I think I shouldn't. I'll go and delete it. Right. You just you get upset at the liberals. You get upset at how dumb people can be. And then you think maybe I shouldn't have said that. Or if you know, well, that's fine. I have a lot of stuff I don't delete and it's always directed at them as well. But sometimes I go overboard and I think I really shouldn't have said that. So anyway, um, yeah, just whatever. Anyway, um, before before we go on. If you walked in and you saw mangoes, they're by there. Those are not from my tree at the house. Those are from a tree that I planted at the mall, okay? They're a different variety. They may be as good to you. They may be better. They may not be as good. Don't worry. We got a million mangoes coming from the house in the next couple of weeks, but please take all of them today. Take them. I don't want to have to carry them home, and I don't want them to sit here and ferment in the heat over the next three days. So take the mangoes, and um, this is really the first year that we've had mangoes off this tree. It's gotten big enough where it had hundreds of them. And so uh, I brought some in today, gave a lot to the ladies at the mall. So, oh, they were giddy. Oh, Charlie. <laughs> uh, Romans 12, too. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect. Aren't these wonderful verses? Yeah, I mean, amazing. They, they, it's, it's amazing. That's the word that I'm thinking. And here my, my, my hair is standing up. Just think, oh, they're wonderful verses. Just think that these are words that you hear, you read, and they, they just, they make you feel better just hearing them. Okay, here we go. In Romans 12, verse 1, Paul spoke of our reasonable service, right? This daily walk in Christ is a volitional act of the will. We're not being forced to do it. Like I said, we fail. We we feel convicted, we confess, we move on, whatever. It is a volitional act of the will. It is prescribed. These 
letters of Paul are what we would call prescriptive. They prescribe things for us to do, okay? But they are not enforced. We can violate any of the things that Paul says, and we go on with our life. They are not enforced. The Lord does not call us home because we do something stupid that Paul has prescribed and we don't follow through with it or we do what he says not to do, etc. They are prescribed, but they are not enforced. If we fail to walk properly, we won't be cast into a prison or sent a fine in the mail. The Lord is not going to do that. We're not going to get something in the mail saying that you've done wrong and, you know, whatever. Okay? And yet... It is what our rewards and losses will be based on when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So it's a little more difficult. Now think of it. I was in a trial yesterday. I was the foreman on the jury, okay? And somebody had done something wrong. It was enforced. He was caught. We had to have a trial on this thing that this guy had done wrong. We had to decide, are we going to give him a penalty? Are we gonna give him a penalty for this count and this count and it, or not, right? That is enforced. We don't have that here, okay? Now, when we have something like that um, in our society and the judges stop punishing people that do wrong, eventually what happens? We have somebody, we'll, we'll just use drugs for an example, okay? You start taking drugs and the law doesn't care anymore, right? Who is it that ultimately suffers? The person, because they're taking drugs that they shouldn't be taking, the law no longer cares and they are destroying themselves, right? They are the only people that are really being harmed and any family or anybody that's around them, right? But the purpose of having laws for drugs, for example, is to protect the person. And I thought to myself, okay, and I'm not going to say whether we convicted or I can, but I'm not going to, whether we convicted or not. But okay, no, he has uh, 10, 10 felon counts against him and we voted for five of them. This is just an example. There were not 10 felony counts, but there were five and we voted five. Okay. And he has to go to jail for the next 30 years. That's not what happened. I'm giving an example. Okay. So this is, this is um, what the society has decided. Who is actually the, the benefactor of that? He is absolutely because he has done something wrong and without the penalty, he's going to continue to do this. And he is now going to go to a place where he gets three meals a day, right? He's going to get a cot to sleep on. He's probably going to get a job if he wants it to be productive, making license plates or whatever. He can learn. They have libraries. He will actually be the beneficiary of this. It may be a terrible life, but you never know. He might meet Jesus in there, right? So these are the kind of things that are going on in this world. And we think the same thing. If I don't do what Paul says, guess what? He says, don't do this, and I do it, and my wife leaves me. My children are unhappy. The whole family is broken apart. They side against me, even though that's my own brother, right? Do you see what's going on? The, just because something is prescribed and not enforced does not mean that there are not consequences for it. We should follow through with these prescriptions, okay? And then ultimately, rewards and losses are what they're gonna be based on, okay? So keep those things in mind understand what is going on in Paul's letters and how God loves you enough to give you these letters, to give you right direction. That's what's important here, okay? So, rewards and losses when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. We are asked to think soberly on our calling and to fix our eyes on the prize, not settle for mediocrity. In order to accomplish this, Paul tells us to not be conformed to this world. Okay, now, I will say this right now. People will take verses like that way, way, way out of context. 
and all of a sudden, you know, you're wearing uh, uh, brown bags or blue bags or black bags, and you, you know, the husband shaves off his mustache, and they all live in little communities. And okay, there's a point where you live in this world, you have to be a part of it. I'm talking about Amish and Mennonites. They they take things to extremes, right? Not Islam. I'm talking about in Christianity. You can take anything to an unintended extreme. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to take you to a verse to show you that we are not required to live in a community separate from the rest of the world. Okay, I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, I'm going to read you what it says there. All right, do not be conformed to this world. But he says there, I wrote to you in my epistle, writing to the, the Corinthians, not to keep company with the sexually immoral people, right? That's something we're not to do, okay? And then he says, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or with extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. You live your life. These people are all over the place. You can't avoid it. Live your life among them. Just don't participate with them. Do not be conformed to them. But there's nothing wrong with hanging out with them. There's nothing wrong with going to a movie with friends. That this is They're not part of you. And they may what you have may rub off on them. But you don't let what they have rub off on you, is what Paul is saying. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. And then he finishes up the chapter really quickly for I have to, what have I to do with judging those who are outside? It's not our job. It's not our job. Okay. Do you not judge those who are inside? He's speaking about within the church, but those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. He does not want somebody that is named a brother who's doing these things to be a part of the fellowship until they come to right reason and change their, their walk. Okay, that is what we're supposed to do. Not being conformed to this world is saying, we have people in the church that are not living for Christ that say that they are brothers. And you allow that. That is conforming to this world. Don't take things to unintended extremes and say, I can't do this and I can't, you know, there are a million things that we could pull out and, and say, who cares? Go to a baseball game, you know, whatever. That's not being conformed to this world. And that is not what Paul is speaking about. Paul writes about the Grecian games probably as much as he writes about anything else. He talks about, don't you know, in the, 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 the race, only one gets the prize. And he goes, all, he says, I beat the air, you know, whatever. He's talking about guys that are practicing. And all the way through his epistles, he's writing about the Grecian games. Guess what Paul had to have done in order to know those things? He was watching the Grecian games, right? He didn't isolate himself from those things. They were a part of his culture, okay? Don't take things to unintended right. extremes. Well, what do all of these things require or necessitate? Discernment. Discernment. Absolutely. Thing, what, what gets me every time is like, oh, you're just being judgmental. It's like, no, no, no. I, I can't be judgmental because I can't penalize or police people. Right. I can be discerning. That's right. That and that's what I'm applying to myself. Right. And that's the standard that I'm applying to somebody that is named a brother. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is not living the way they're supposed to. Okay, right here. Being conformed to this world is to walk in a manner which is at enmity with God. That's Romans 8, 7. Let me take you back here really quickly. It says, because the, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can be. Okay? 
The Greek word indicates accepting the form or appearance of another. It could include anything which would align oneself with another. Habit, mannerisms, style of clothing, form of living, etc. We are not to be conformed or fashioned to the world in such a way. However, there are fashions and mannerisms that can't be avoided. Further, this becomes problematic because one person could disprove of a, a particular style, which is a natural appearance to another person, right? And that happens all over. That happens within cultures. You know what? I, I hate to use this example, but this is really an extreme one. But guess what? When somebody goes over to uh, a, a tropical island and they evangelize the locals, what are the women looking like? They're not anything. Yeah, right. You know, so um, is that wrong from, uh, uh, what do you call it, a uh, English perspective? What do you call it? Victorian English? Oh, yeah, it's way wrong. But for them, that's normal. They're, that's not an issue of lust. It's not an issue of any such thing. That's just their traditional wear. Okay, so we have to be careful in how we impose our standards on other cultures and how we say what is appropriate within this culture, what is not appropriate within this culture. It's, it can be difficult and it can become very quickly a point of being judgmental, very quickly. But as he said, I'm not imposing it on anybody else. I'm, I'm imposing it on myself. This is my standard for me, okay? Um, uh, let's see, where were we? Uh, Habert, mannerisms, etc. Okay, becomes problematic with particular styles, etc. If the thought of conforming isn't carefully considered, one could find fault with anything. Sure. And there are Christians that do this all yeah. the time. Men's hair reaching to the collar. I was in a church right down the road here for years. That's where my children went to school and there was a church co-located with it. And, and it was very legalistic, King James only. But this one guy was the determining factor of whose hair was too long, right? Oh. If your hair touched the collar, your hair is way too long. It was insane, crazy, Cra absolutely crazy, right? You know, it just, it, the, the way that some people judged the world, completely tearing scripture apart, completely abusing. Listen, I've, I, you know, I don't know how you can reconcile this when you're dealing with people like that, but um, uh, John the Baptist, okay, he was born a Nazarite. That's right, he was born a Nazarite. Samuel was a Nazarite. Scripture will never contradict scripture. Okay, these people never cut their hair ever in their life. Their hair was very, very long. Was that in violation of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 or 11, which uh, 14? No. Did they have beards? Guaranteed. Nobody would mistake them for a woman. Okay, nobody would make that mistake. Okay, if you want to look clean shaven, if you want to look fine and clean cut for your job or for whatever, that's fine, but don't impose that so, on other people. So in that particular church, there's so legalist, the legalistic from what? Where does it say? No dancing. No, Where no, this, it, it doesn't. That's just it. That is what legalism is. When legalism is something that is imposed that is not scriptural. Liberalism is something that is allowed that is unbiblical. You've got the two extremes, okay? One is saying you need to do this, even though it's not in scripture. It doesn't matter that that the Bible says it or not. This is the standard that they have imposed, and that's why it's called legalism. This, we're going to allow this illicit behavior. That's why it's liberal. That's why they're, they've departed. Either one is equally poisonous. People will say, oh, you know, these liberal churches are so bad, blah, blah, blah. I'm telling you what, they're just as, these people doing this are just as bad. When you start imposing non-biblical standards on people or taking something that is, is in the Bible and misusing it, yeah. That is just as detrimental as ignoring what the Bible says.
and people may not see it that way, but it is. You will harm the relationship with Christ when you add to or subtract from the Word of God. Either way, okay. So, um, men's hair reaching to the collar, beards, right? Yeah. Oh, it was funny yesterday. The guy, you know my real name. You don't have to say it, but I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm in there, and they, they, they were reading out the name, and he looked up and he said, um, uh, "How did he say?" It, it was very funny. He said, um, "Ma'am, uh, do," you, and I said. He was looking right at me, right? He was looking because my name sounds like a lady's name, right? Oh and so, yeah, and so he's looking at me and he says, um, all right, I'll, I'll say it, Emlyn Garrett. And he's looking at me when he says it. And I said, I went like this and he says, ma'am. And I said, and everybody laughed. Everybody laughed. It was, it was good. And then he got around asking the questions and he said, oh um, you know, because this is a jury selection. Who are we going to take and who are we not going to take? And it, they were asking, you know, this person, this person. And he said uh, they got into conflicts between um, uh, conflicts that need resolution. One person has one opinion or one person says one thing, one person says another thing. Have you ever had to deal with that? And I looked at him and I said, I'm a preacher and everybody bust up again. I mean, it says it right there in front of him. What do you think? I just, I, I stay in my house all day and don't, you know, whatever. Oh, don't ever look at your computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, no, no. Yeah, that's all that's I deal with funny. all day long. But yeah, so they, they were rolling. But that, yeah, he said, man, because he's thinking the name, even he's looking at me and I started pulling on it and he goes, I'm sorry. He said, that's a very unusual name. I said, I know. Anyway, yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Now I can elim yeah. eliminate. Okay, yeah, eliminate. Okay, so uh, where were we? We got to get back into this. Okay, um, not to be conformed to that. Okay, collar, beards, tattoo, high-heeled shoes, women wearing pants, bikinis at the beach. I mean, hey, bikinis at the beach. That's where you wear your, your, your bikinis, right? Now, if you were wearing today what they had in the 1920s, People would freak out, but there's, this is a different culture. It's a different time. And I got to tell you what, I have no problem going to the beach. I don't think any differently. I, I will, t I will say this. And maybe some guys will agree with me and some won't, but when I see a woman that has a long dress on, I think it's more, yeah, I, I, I get more of an idea of a woman than I do somebody out at the beach. So, you know, I, I, people that have issues with that type of thing probably shouldn't go to the beach. But that's what you do when you go to the beach, okay? So they're, once again, I don't want to get too far. They what? My neck hurts when I go to the beach. Yeah, yeah, his neck hurts when he goes to the beach. First, first look, you get, because you got to know what's out there. The second look is like you're... No, how did Adrian Rogers said Adrian Rogers and Tom says it too. Uh, um, uh, the first look is okay. It's the second one that'll get you or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So you just, just you know, keep your eyes to yourself. And we were just talking about that. Me and somebody else were talking about this just a couple hours ago. That Job said, uh, um, "Should I? Uh, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Should I look at a, a, a maiden? In other words, I'm, it doesn't interest me. I am the Lord's servant. I have a wife." I've made a covenant with my eyes not to do that thing, okay? But I'm not going to go out there and impose my standards on people, even Christians that want to wear bikinis. It's not going to happen, okay? So we've got all of these different things. Tattoo, high heel shoes, women wearing pants, bikinis at the beach. The list could go on and on and on, and it often is never ending with the judgmental type. Once you introduce something into your opinion, imposing on other people that is not in Scripture, you would become a legalist, okay? I don't care if it's your hang-up. 
you do not do that. Now, I'll give you an example. I think I've given it in this class before, maybe not. I had a professor, one of my favorite professors up at the uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he had a friend that was a baseball guy. That's all he thought about was baseball. He was baseball, but he had all the team stuff. He went to every game, baseball, baseball, baseball. All right. And he met the Lord and he gave up baseball. It was like an idol to him. It, he just, but guess what he did? The professor and a couple other guys were like, we're going out to the game tonight. You want to come? And he was like, how dare you? How could no, you? He yeah. He's there. taking his standards no. now and imposing it on somebody else. Listen, if you've got to hang up with baseball and you can't handle it, then that's yeah. fine. Do not impose that on somebody else. Wow. Do not do that. That is legalism. Show me where it says. Now, there, tennis is in the Bible. What? Baseball, yes. When David served or when Joseph served in Pharaoh's courts. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. So, it, it, but yes. Um, okay. Anyway, move on. So, so you're being judgmental. I'm like, oh, wait now. Yeah. Isn't that a judgmental statement? That's right. That's a judgmental yeah, statement. Right. And like, what is what is your basis for making that statement? Right. Okay. Now you tell me what your basis for making that statement is, and we'll talk about who's judgmental here, because that is called projection. Baseball is in the, in the Old Testament as well. Yes, it is in the big inning. There you go. See, baseball is in there too. <laughs> Uh, see, we got baseball. We got uh, um, we've got um, uh, uh, the best actor in the Bible was Samson. He really brought down the house. Okay. Oh, <laughs> okay, we got to go on. Let's see here. Um, let's see here. What do we have here? Okay, so um, yeah, judgmental types. The idea isn't concerning things to wear that can be bought at the store. Nor is it that we cannot be a part of the customs of the culture which we live in. Rather, it is not to be conformed to the worldly lifestyle right. where it becomes our priority okay we are to focus on christ think about christ talk to christ to live in and live for christ the beautiful part of paul's instruction is that which was noted above what is our reasonable service when we understand that these things are prescribed but not enforced it should help us to properly evaluate when someone is overconformed to the world and under conformed to Christ okay that's how that's why we need to know the Bible that's why we need to know when to not put our nose into other people's business when they're not violating the Bible making judgmental uh, accusations about things which are completely irrelevant to the picture that might be the most Christian person in the world and just because he's got hair down above his collar you're gonna condemn him you got to be out of your mind Read the Bible, take it in context. We'll be in 1 Corinthians and, you know, uh, we'll be at the end of 1 Corinthians in about two years. And when we do, or if you want the study on men's hair, if you want that, let me read that to you very quickly. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is it? Um, uh, resurrection of dead. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, where does he say it? A dust? No, 1 Corinthians 11. Where am I? It's, um, hang on one second here. It's, it's somewhere. A Greek word, slaves, and I, uh, members of... Uh, Oh, come on, Charlie. Is it 14? Uh, da, 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 five words, but now brethren spoken. Uh, he's speaking about that. The, come on, Burke, you know where it is. Don't make me spend all day on this. Yeah, he is. It's, um, uh, it, you know, the hair, you've got um, uh, 
somebody is online right now hitting their computer screen Seven. saying, oh, here it is. It's, yeah, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay. It's, um, we'll, I'm just going to read very quickly talking about uh, every man praying or prophesying with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And it goes on and on talking about the man and the woman and the hair and all this kind of stuff. If you want to understand that, I have typed it all up. I've got a long study on it. I can email it to you and it'll help you out. Or just go online to wonderfulone.com and go to 1 Corinthians book study and scroll down to that and read it. And it'll tell you exactly what it's speaking about. Because the same word, what is it, kafale, for head is the same word as head, like we do in English. He is the head of the company. Oh, oh. This is his head. Oh. Same thing in Greek. Okay. So anyway, um, uh, understanding that and taking it in context, it's a very easy thing to do. But if not, next thing you know, you're sitting in the Amish church with a little bonnet on your head. Okay. Everything has to be in context. All right. So um, uh, let's see here. Um yeah, customs and cultures which we live in, rather, it is not to be conformed to the worldly lifestyle where it becomes our priority. And I said that. Okay, so when we understand these things are prescribed but not enforced, it should help us to properly evaluate when someone is overconformed to the world and underconformed to Christ. And this is explained by the next thought, which is preceded by the word but. This Greek, this word in Greek, Allah, is given to contrast the first thought. Instead of being conformed to this world, it says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is the mind and the attitude which stems from it, which is being focused on rather than the externals. Remember this when Frank and uh, Fran finger point or find fault in your fashion, okay? Frank and Fran finger point or finding fault in your fashion. Okay, wow. to, yeah, took a second there. To be transformed is to have a complete mental change in who we are from who we once were. It's a mental change more than a outwardly change. Okay, the Greek word is metamorpho. Anybody recognize that? Yeah, it's like metamorphosis. That's right. If you notice, it is the word, root of our word metamorphosis. Just as a caterpillar is changed into a butterfly, we are to be changed from an earthly mindset to a heavenly one, from our view of a temporary existence to an eternal one. From a system of living for pleasure to one living for Christ's honor. This word is used only three other times in the New Testament. Matthew 17, verse 2, Mark 9, 2, and 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. The first two are speaking of the, anybody? Metamorpho. The transfiguration. Very good. The third is this verse from Paul's hand, but we all with unveiled face oh i'm sorry uh the third is this verse i'm sorry and then the fourth is but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the lord are being transformed metamorpho into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the lord at the transfiguration god's glory showed through jesus not upon him he was literally changed before their eyes to reveal and shine forth the glory of god this is what Paul is telling the believer should occur in their lives as well. The spirit within is to shine out, not be hidden away. Remember, we're the earthly receptacle. We have the precious, valuable contents. Thank you. We are the container that is the contents, and it is supposed to shine forth out of us. It's not to be hidden away, secreted away. Once again, it does not mean that you are not a good Christian or a, a saved Christian. Shouldn't have said good. It is not that you are not a saved Christian if you don't demonstrate this. And this is where 
Fran and Frank Fingerpointer come in also. Okay, well, that guy can't be saved because. That guy can't be saved because. All right? Absolutely not. I'm sorry. That is not how it works. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit when you believe. 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 Okay? Everything after that comes down to rewards and losses. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is a guarantee. That is it. If you get these finger pointers out there that are saying that person can't be saved, they have no idea what that person's life is like. They have no idea. And I guarantee if you went and peeked in their window, yes. bedroom window and, yes. or their, their uh, what do you call it? Uh, not bedroom window. What's the uh, uh, living room? Thank you. The living room window. Picture window. Picture window. Thank you. You would see a completely different set of people at home. And they are just as bad. Okay, so Everything there you, might get you in trouble. Yeah, no, no, don't, don't, don't peek in people's bedroom window. Okay, it's the picture window. Anyway, um, okay, so uh, let's see here. Yeah, we're to, we're to have the 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 glory of God shining out. It's not to be hidden away. But again, this is accomplished by our voluntary actions. Thus, when someone sees us, they should be seeing the changed person revealing the glory of God, albeit in the fallen body. This is the era of charismatic churches where signs and gifts are displayed at worship services. The change isn't to be in church on Sunday morning. I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. As a matter of fact, and I've said this before, but it's a truth I see every single day on Facebook, every day, Sunday before church. I'm so excited. I'm going to go get a big dose of the Holy Spirit, right? And then after church, they come when they say, it was the most spirit-filled, wonderful church service. I'm so filled with the Lord. And Monday morning, they are posting the most vulgar, indecent things, or they're saying how bad their life is, or I don't understand why my boss is such a crumb. And I think you obviously didn't learn anything in church, right? Because you are not being filled with the spirit the way you should be. You thought you were yesterday, and that has nothing. What they do in those churches has nothing to do with what the Bible says about being filled with the spirit. As I say again and again, and people don't want to register it, it is a passive action. It is not an active action. It's passive. There are certain things that you do, and the Spirit fills you. You have all of the Spirit you are ever going to get the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ. You will never get more Spirit, ever. But He can get more of you. It is a passive action based on what you do, okay? So these people going into church and, and saying that they're being filled with the Spirit like that are deluded. They're delusional, okay? As a matter of fact, somebody sitting in this church right now went to a charismatic church right down on 12th Street. He said, I just have to know if this is real. And the guy walked around and he slayed in the Spirit every single person in the church. And he got to this guy and nothing happened. It wasn't me, I can tell you that right now, but nothing happened. And the, the pastor said, what, he's not filled with the Spirit or something? I don't know. I'm not going to put, I'm he's not going to, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway, he's the only person that understood right doctrine in the entire church. And somebody posted that on Facebook just yesterday or two days ago. Is being slayed in the Spirit real? And all I did was put no, no, okay? Other people started posting, oh, it's happened to me a million times, blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry. Absolutely not. That is absolutely untrue. There are people that are deceived and there are people that are deceivers. And you know what? If you want to see what being slayed in the spirit is, just go to any hypnotist thing on uh, Friday night down at uh, Mercurdy's Comedy Club. If they have a hypnotist in there and all the people that are falling out in the congregate or uh, the, uh, audience. the audience, it's the exact same thing. It's hypnotism. That's all it is. Don't ever tell me that you have been slayed in the spirit because I'm not going to believe you. And I'm going to say that you have. Is that what it is? Of course it is. 
people allow themselves to be yes they open themselves up to suggestion that's exactly right that don't email me about that don't tell me I, I i will disagree with you so there's no point in getting into the conversation it is not scriptural it has nothing to do with christ and in the same gatherings there's everybody in there saying these stupid speaking in tongues when it's very clear what speaking in tongues is in the Bible, no more than three or four people, there must be a translator, and it is always a known language. It's not that gobbledygook that they say up in there in the pulpit and the people rolling around on the floor. Okay, that is a very, very poor handling of your Christian experience. Okay, so please don't don't email me about it. Okay, it, it is wrong. It is just not right. Okay, charismatic churches. The change isn't to be in church on Sunday morning. It is to be the state of life at all times. The, changes, uh, the change isn't merely seen in the external demonstrations meant to convince others of a spirit-filled life. The change is in the internal. It is the person who is then to radiate it outward. Okay, You're not there to convince anybody else of your spirit-filled life. When I was looking for colleges, college after college after college says that you must have a demonstration of the Spirit through the speaking of tongues in order to, yeah, that was one of their requirements in many, many colleges that I looked at. And I'm like, I ain't going there, right? They, they, they must speak in tongues before they are going to be allowed as a member. So they're forcing somebody to be more holy than everybody else. I mean, what? Does English count? Yeah, does English count? Because that's what I'm doing right now, Okay. And I'll translate the English, too, if you want me to. I'll get rid of all the ums and ers, and I'll give you a more clear English, but that's all you're getting. Okay? Yeah, well, that's, there you go. Uh, and the reason for this, not radiating outward, but, I mean, uh, to impress others, but radiating outward from in you. The reason for this is the renewing of the mind is explained by Paul in a clear and concise manner that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of god he uses a term for prove which is linked to the testing of metals if one wants to prove gold for purity they will take a sample of it and see if it's pure or not does anybody know what that's called there's a process assaying that's right okay so when i went up one summer of my life i was on the 40 mile river it was after i left um uh the gulf gate wastewater treatment plant and before i started something else I went up to Alaska for one summer and I was on the 40 mile river and what you have to do is you have to go to Fairbanks and then you go four hours to a place called Chicken, Chicken Alaska. Do you know why it's called Chicken Alaska? Because they can't spell ptarmigan, P-T-A-R-M-I-G-A-N, ptarmigan. Yeah, that's the native bird up there. And so they tried to spell ptarmigan, nobody knew how to spell it, so they said we'll just call it chicken and the name stuck. So it's Chicken Alaska and you no, know, that's true. As a matter of fact, my friend who just went up there, he, he went north to Alaska and he, he did a Facebook uh, journey yeah. so we could follow him along. He got up there and he got the chicken and he sent me a postcard with ptarmigan, ptarmigan, all spelled wrong. And then it just says, they wiped it out and said chicken. So it's this little town of like 12 year round people and then it, it blooms during the summer. But um, uh, from chicken, you go down to the 40 mile. And then we went 17 miles down there. So from it, it is in the middle of nowhere where we had this claim. And so I found eight, actually I found two pounds of gold. Okay. Two pounds? Yeah, two pounds. But one went to the claim owner, one went to me. Okay. So I have a pound of gold and it needs to be assayed. Okay. In order to determine its purity. If you don't do that, then they don't know what to give you. And there'll be other metals in there. There'll be some uh, platinum and there'll be some mercury, believe it or not. And the reason why is because in the 1800s, when they did the mining, they didn't have 
dredges to work underwater. I worked with scuba gear and I worked underwater, okay? They didn't have that. So what they did is they went out there in the wintertime and they jacked through the frozen river and then they would start running mercury through the cracks and the mercury is like, it's like a magnet. It sticks right to gold, just like a magnet sticks to metal, okay? And so they would get that gold out. And so we will find some mercury in the gold nowadays. Yes, and that all has to be extracted out. What you would do though, is you would get rid of the mercury before you send it to the assayer, okay? And you do that by burning it with a, a torch and it goes off in the atmosphere, but that's a real dangerous process. Yes. You wanna make sure you do it out in the open. And a lot of miners didn't know that in the 1800s and they went crazy because they do it in the, their cabin at night oh, and they, they'd lost their minds, yeah. So anyway, the gold now has to be assayed. And so you get a sample of it and they will send you a certificate of what that gold, the purity of it now is. And so it'll be like, I think it was 98.423% or something pure, okay? And the rest of it is just stuff they can't have. So now you have it assayed, and then to prove the metal from there afterward, you've got all this gold, and if you want to cash it in, what they will do is they will melt it down, okay? And everything has its own melting point, right? So eventually everything gets separated, and then you have the gold. And some things are heavier, and they come to the top as dross, and some things are uh, whatever, they, they melt it different. This is how you prove metals, how you come out with pure gold, okay? So when you get something, a coin from the U.S. Mint, it'll say um, U.S. Mint certified gold 99.27% gold standard, whatever it is. The same thing with silver. That's what Paul is doing here, okay? So um, uh, let's see here. To prove gold. Uh, and I got some nice nuggets too, beautiful nuggets with quartz and the gold running through it. And I made some necklaces for Tanji and, and uh, Thor or Hidako, and, uh, but they never wear them. I, they, they took on one time and that was that. But beautiful gold. Anyway, um, uh, about two and a half months. You only get a, a very short time up there because the river's frozen and then it, it thaws. And then you got a couple of months when you're up there and then it freezes again. And it was great. I loved it. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You carried a gun everywhere you went because you're a bear everywhere and ptarmigan everywhere. You might want to shoot some dinner up. So anyway, it was a great time. But I got an ear infection towards the end and I just, I couldn't work anymore. I'd go out and I'd try to work and I just got so frustrated. The last three weeks, I was just, I was not good up there. But it was a good time. Wonderful people. Um, anyway, so um, prove the gold for purity. Okay. They'll take a sample of it to see if it's pure or not. The same is true with whatever metal or alloy is being tested. Such proof will ensure strength, purity, hardness, pliability, etc. Depending on what the gold is for, depending on what the other metal is for, okay, you might want to have a certain alloy because when you get 14 karat gold, guess what? That means that it's 14 karat is not 24 karat, which is pure gold. That other stuff is in there for hardness. It's in there for uh, maybe a certain shine. You don't want the darker natural gold color. You want it to be more shiny, like yours. That's probably 14 karat right yeah. there, okay? If you buy gold in uh, Thailand or Malaysia when I was there, it was the standard was 18 and sometimes 20 karat. It was really beautiful to see, okay? Uh, you don't want to go above 20 because it starts getting soft, yeah, okay? but. Um, you could get 22 karat. It's not like America where the standard is 14 and that's all you're getting. But um, you just, it's kind of pointless to get that high. 20 is probably about a size you're going to want to go. But um, anyway, um, so you have all these different things. And then we are based on the proving of us, the proving, just like the metals, we are to be so transformed that the proof is in the testing of us, a scale which can only be measured against this right here that's our standard not rolling around in church on sunday morning looking like a fool 
and then on Monday morning saying how bad life is and how mean your boss is and all that kind of stuff, okay? This is the standard by which we test. God hasn't given us another standard. He hasn't given us a standard of how holy we are by making up words that have no meaning or by doing any of the things that the charismatic churches love to do. It is not a proper standard. That is the proper standard, okay? Um, uh, God's word in this life and by the Lord at our judgment. So we have one standard now that we can apply to ourselves. Remember I said that it's, it's prescribed, but it's not enforced, right? So we have this. This is our standard. And then someday he's going to take us and he's going to stand us in front of him and he's going to say, you were given this instruction, but you did not apply it. It was not enforced. That was your choice. You didn't apply or you did apply a good job. And the standard will be when Paul writes in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Is that where it is, uh, Burke? The anyway. Quality, the quality of each man's work. Yes, the quality of each man's work. And is it 1 Corinthians 3? Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. So uh, uh, I, it's so good to have him as a go-to guy because I don't remember verses well. I remember what they say, but... I, Finding them sometimes is a tedious job. But anyway, we're going to stand before the Lord. He is going to test our work. We've got wood, hay, and stubble. And we've got uh, precious gold and uh, gold, silver. gold, silver, and precious uh, gems. That's right. The first three will be refined under heat. The other three will be burned up under heat. And so that's what it's going to be like. We're going to have a refining or we're going to have a burning up. And there's going to be some people that are going to be real toasty when they're done with the uh, evaluation but they have not lost their salvation, right? They're in the same place that you will be for all eternity, okay? If people would keep the finger. I love the saying, I heard this years ago and I hear it once in a while and I, I, I do say it from time to time, even though it's kind of cliche, is that when you have a finger pointing at somebody, you've got three more pointing back ah, at you. So there good. you go. Yeah, it's a good way to remember. Warren. The what? Warren. Warren, yeah, Warren's good about that. He's got a couple good cliches. He's got a couple really good. He says, sometimes uh, the devil's in the room. Uh, uh, how does he say it? And you're the only one there. Yeah, and you're the only one there. That's right. He, he's very good about that. Sometimes the devil's in the room and you're the only one there. So he's a wonderful guy. He's, he's a wonderful. Warren is from the projects and we see him every week and he is a marvelous human being. So, uh, uh, okay, anyway, we're to be transformed, okay? The proof is in the testing of us. We have the word of God as our standard, the Lord at our judgment. The good and acceptable will of God, which Paul writes, is our goal and the standard of our testing. We cannot get this from the inner Christ, which is another problem. People talk about the inner Christ and you get these new age churches. I'm sorry, the way, way big mistake there, folks. Stay away from that type of terminology only by adhering to the word of God and allowing it to change us to the conformity of the Holy Spirit. The Bible shows that being filled with the Spirit, and I've already talked about this, is a passive action. It is not an active one. As we comply, he fills. As we fail to comply, there is no room for the filling. That's just the way it works. When you have a glass and it's already full of something else, you can't put in anything else, right? When the glass is empty and you're saying, I'm being obedient to the Lord, the Spirit fills. It's a passive action. The glass is doing nothing. It's receiving the filling. That's what happens when we're obedient to the Word of God. And as I said, 34 years, the poor woman, I've been married to Hedico. I will never get more married than the day that she and I said I do to each other 34 years ago this day. At 6 o'clock in the morning, out at the end of the dock. Yes, the sun was rising. 
Yes, we were on our way to Japan. So we're going to go to the land of the rising sun. We're going to get married at the... Yeah, it was yeah, it was real early. Anyway, it was nice, though, because uh, Mr. Stevens, who I worked for for years when I was a kid, he had a bald head, so the sun was shining off his bald head. So, yeah, there you go. Anyway, um, Hedika's laughing. <laughs> okay, anyway, um, so... Uh, Scott Calloway, who comes every year, and he's with us every year two or three times. He was there at the wedding. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He's, as a matter of fact, he shaved me when I went into uh, basic training. He gave me my last haircut. He says, you don't want to go like that. So he gave me a haircut. I got photos of it. So anyway, yeah, hey, we've been friends a long time. And here he is still showing up in my life all these years later. Um, good guy. Great guy. Okay. So the um, uh, it's passive action. Okay, as we comply, he fills. As we fail to comply, there is no room for the filling. The believer can never get more of the Spirit, but the Spirit can always get more of the believer. Always. Life application, and we'll get one more and we'll be done. Um, we're going to have to go through that quick. That's a long one. Oh, well. Okay, um, uh, the life application, the renewing of the mind must come about by adherence to God's Word. Without it, we become the arbiters of what is and is not acceptable. Everybody got that? It's either this or it's us. It can't be both. It's impossible. It has to be the Lord. Okay, stay close to the Word, know the Word, and live out the Word. Allow the Holy Spirit to fill you through obedient conformity to God's Word. Wonderful stuff. Next verse, yes. Uh, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so, so shine, shine before others. Yeah. If, if it's just for us, and it's saying it's just to shine out to other people, that they may see your good work. That's right. Glorify, Glorify your Father who is in heaven. heaven. So this, this thing about us, all the gifts of the Spirit are for the church's edification. For that's their right. Growth. That's all right. Of them. All if of them. Read in, all in, of them. Are, that's form, exactly right. It, it is. God gave these gifts for the body. Not That's right. Not for the individual. And they, the body is to be there to give glory to God. It, exactly the right. ultimate goal of all of it is for edification of the church so that the church can give, be glorious or give glory to God through how it is perceived and how it acts and conducts itself. Absolutely. Right. Very, very good. Okay, go ahead. 12-3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Okay, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. I mean, that one, the rest of the verse, all is good, but every time I think of that, be humble. Be humble. Don't think more of yourself. I mean, that is a giant problem because once you start thinking highly of yourself, you are not thinking highly of the Lord. It's either him or it is you, and there is no fellowship between the two when you are exalting yourself. Okay, so there you go. Hi, how are you tonight? That's all right. Come on in. We're almost done. A couple more minutes. Okay, so here we are, 12-3. In this verse, Paul makes a word play for us from the idea of thought. Four times in the Greek, the word phronein is used in one form or another. Each is given to have us stop and mentally consider or to think on the thought he wants us to think about. Okay, the word for, he begins with for, is given to build on verses one and two. He spoke of our responsibility to the Lord to be as living sacrifices and to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Okay, well, I'll remember that. 
if we are living sacrifices and are being transformed to correspond to the will of God, then what he will now write should naturally follow. Everybody got that? He's making, just like he has in the past, he's making a logical argument towards an end. He's very good about doing this, okay? But rather than immediately starting with this, he interjects a point of humility concerning himself. He says, for I say through the grace given to me. What is grace? Unmerited, unmerited favor. Thank you. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. It's the opposite of mercy, which is not getting what you do deserve. Right. So I don't know what happened in the court afterward. We gave our verdict yesterday. We left. And then there was a sentencing. I have no idea what happened. Okay. All I can say is that either she was merciful or she wasn't merciful. That's her job as the judge. It's not our judge. Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, no. Once you give your verdict, you go. Okay, that's it. So we left and I could look on the newspaper probably and, you know, whatever. I have no idea if they publish that kind of stuff in the paper or not, but that's, you know, that's it. So the grace given to me is what Paul says. He's speaking about his apostleship. Okay, that's in Romans 1 verse 5. Go back there and read that, okay? Which is preeminently one directed to... Okay, but what is the church led by? No, 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 no. Paul's apostleship, come on, is to the, begins, yes, Gentiles. There you go, to the Gentiles. Okay, I am the apostle to the Gentiles, as Peter is the apostle to the circumcision. Right, okay, so despite this exalted position, all right, it was given through grace. It wasn't something that he earned. He didn't merit it. It was through grace. In other words, Paul has excluded boasting from his position. And therefore, when his pen, when he pens his coming words, boastings or feelings of superiority should be excluded. Right? Okay. In the end, if our position came by grace, then the playing field is level. There's no hump for one person and valley for another. It is level. Okay. <laughs> Having shown this up front, he continues with, to everyone who is among you. He's writing to all of them, okay? Each recipient of his letter, and that includes all people today, because these are still prescriptive for the church age, all right? It includes even us today who peruse the words of Romans is not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, right? Whatever our position is, we shouldn't allow it to go to our heads, Pastors are often placed on high pedestals. You hear that a lot. You know, you just, oh, he's oh, a great man of God, whatever. Whatever our position is, we shouldn't allow that to happen. This, as far as putting them on a pedestal, this only increases the size of the church. Uh, I'm sorry. This only increases as the size of the church increases. Swollen heads overshadow large pulpits. Eventually, they are treated and they accept the treatment as superstars. Elders and churches will often have their heads burst forth with thoughts of control and power. We've seen that in churches that some of us were in, all right? They didn't have to do the hard work in seminary, but they still get control of the flock, okay? You're appointed as an elder, and all of a sudden, the next thing you know, they're making all of the decisions, and they're doing it in a way which is not user-friendly, okay? Those who have a strong grasp of the word, taking it in context and understanding the nuances of the original languages can lord this over others, don't they? You even see it in commentaries sometimes, okay? They've mastered the Greek. They've mastered the Hebrew. They understand all of the nuances, and all of a sudden, I know it, and you don't, okay? So you've you got to be careful. Think, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought, okay? They act as if they hold the keys to deep insights and wisdom, doling it out with a teaspoon. Musicians are often exalted and act 
as if they are greats of the faith, simply because they sing songs with deep-seated theological lyrics. And the list could go on. We see it in churches all the time, okay? All the time. But Paul warns against this, and we should heed the warning, even taking time to memorize these 12 words, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, okay? Say it to yourself. Say it to yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. As soon as pride steps in, the devil gains a foothold into the life of the believer. If the Creator can come in human flesh, walk among us, and wash the dirty feet of his apostles, the highest designation in the church age, then we have nothing to consider ourselves more worthy than any other person in this body. After all, Paul has already shown that the apostleship is given by grace. They are the highest level in the church, and yet the Lord himself washed their feet. Right? We have nothing to boast over. It all is all by grace. He has preempted boasting at any level. Any level, from the apostle all the way down to the guy that cleans the toilet. Boy, that's the shiniest toilet in all the churches in America. See what I did? Don't do it. Okay? Just <laughs> clean it. Move on. Okay, and if they're dirty, it's my fault because I'm the one that does it here, so blame me. All right, uh, let's see here. So uh, anyway, um, instead, Paul says that we are to think soberly using the term sophrain. This word is used to indicate being sober-minded or to think clearly while exercising self-control. It is formed by two words which translate as safe and that which regulates life. The second word is the root of our word diaphragm. Everybody got that? That's your diaphragm? Okay. Helps word studies gives the example of an opera singer who controls the length or quality of his tones by the diaphragm. This then controls the ability to breathe and to moderate heartbeat. This in turn regulates or brings safety to the body, keeping it properly controlled. See, everything is working together. This physical example translates well into what Paul asks us of our mental state. And the reason we are to think soberly is because it all comes back to God in the end. It is he who has dealt, as Paul says, to each one a measure of faith. So if he's dealt out our measure of faith, then we can't even brag about that, can we? I have more faith than you do. Well, he gave it to me. It, everything came from him ultimately. There is nothing that we can boast of, okay? Even if faith is an exercise of the free will, and it is, I grant that, that free will was granted by God. And the opportunity to exercise it was also granted by God because he could have called us home when we were a baby or he could have called us home when we were 12 or at 27 or whatever age we met the Lord. So even that was at his control anyway. There's nothing that we have that we can say, I can boast in this thing. Plus, free will as a work is excluded in Romans 3.27, if you remember that. So you can't brag on it anyway. All right. So to understand this, think of two people with exactly the same free, free will and looking to exercise it in exactly the same way. Seeker one is in a store in Sarasota, Florida, when two guys come in and talk to him about the Bible, about Jesus and about salvation. He accepts the premise, exercises his faith and receives Jesus Christ. That was me, by the way. That's in my store right down the road. OK. Seeker two is in Wang Chung, China. He knows, anybody know Wang Chung? It's a rock group from the uh, 1980s, oh, Wang Chung. Yeah. It's because of the sound that the guitar makes, Wang Chung. So they called themselves Wang Chung. Anyway, so he's in Wang Chung, China. He knows, it wasn't really a rock group. It was more a new wave oh, pop yeah. group. Anyway, very, very good music, by the way. Anyway, he knows there's a God. He wants to know him. 
Mission budgets were cut for Wang Chung, though, and nobody is sent to evangelize the lost there. This guy happens to hear the word of faith. He had the same believing faith as Seeker too, but nobody went and spoke to him, right? He never hears the saving message of Jesus Christ. Did Seeker 1 deserve his opportunity to hear the word? No, I not at all. Did Seeker 2 somehow not measure up? No. By grace alone did Seeker 1 hear and receive the message. Now apply this to any state of any believer. One person may have the financial ability to go to seminary and another may lack it. The first becomes a pastor and the second cleans churches' bathrooms. The first cannot presume that he is better than the second. He merely was granted a grace that the first lacked. However, the toilet cleaner may have a much, much deeper and more pleasing to God faith than the pastor of the church. In the end, none should think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Rather, he needs to consider his position soberly, whatever it is, and understand that it was granted by God alone. Life application and we are done. The universe doesn't center around any of us. Be humble and exalt the Lord, okay? There you go. Good stuff. All right, let's say a prayer and we're done for the night. And I have, I bet, a really good dinner coming on my 34th wedding anniversary. So, <laughs> just, we'll see here. But did you have something, Jim? No. Uh, I'm just wondering, though, we're meeting next Thursday, the day after the 4th of July. I am. If you yeah, don't, yeah, just, absolutely just confirming. Yeah, I, I didn't even think of it. This happens every year. You know, Thanksgiving comes. I'm like, oh, it's next week, and no, we're not meeting next week. So yeah, I'm glad you said that. But yes, as long as it's fourth not a, on yeah, yeah, fourth is on a Wednesday. So fourth, yeah. So we'll be here. Yeah, absolutely. So what I did. You no, know, no, I'm glad he did because like you know it may have been the fourth, and then I would have been like, oh no. Yeah. Okay, so let's go ahead and have a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this precious word. What a gift it is, what a treasure it is. And while we're thanking you for the word, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you for the gift of our faith, the gift of the grace that was lavished upon us that some people want. They're waiting to hear the message and they never hear it because we fail to fund missionaries and to send them who are willing to tell people about Jesus. Help us not to be that way, Lord, but to be open with our hand so that we can fill their hand and send them off to places where they can go and tell this beautiful message of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you so much for the beautiful wife that you have given me 34 years ago to be my partner in this walk. And thank you that she has stuck with me through all of the times that I've been like a little baby. You've been so gracious to us to give her to me and to have her tend to me all these years. And I'm so grateful. So thank you for her. Thank you for each person here. We pray that everybody will be kept safe throughout the week ahead and that we'll meet uh, on Sunday for a wonderful time of fellowship in your presence. And then to be here again next week as well, if it's your will, we pray these things that you will be glorified and exalted in our life. And we pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Dogs. Uh, dogs. It's got little dog bones and stuff all over it. I don't know. Somebody said I don't remember right now. But let me let me back this up, and we'll say goodbye to the folks.